This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice and today is Friday, the first day of December 2023. You and I are joined by four men who are staff writers for the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine. Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. Andrew Miller. Hello. In our studio in Britain are Richard Palmer and Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. You can avail yourself of this free magazine, the Philadelphia Trumpet, at thetrumpet.com slash subscribe. Go there as quick as you can, thetrumpet.com slash subscribe. Since the January 2024 edition is on the very verge of being sent from our editorial department here to the printer, I've not heard back from our circulation manager, but I believe there might still be time, if you subscribe now, to start your subscription with that issue. And why not start it with the January issue, the first month of the year, on the Roman calendar at least, thetrumpet.com slash subscribe. Be it the January issue or the February issue, which is our anniversary issue, the print edition of The Trumpet will inform you about world events, collecting a number of individual recent events and relating them to a larger trend. But on Trumpet Hour Week in Review, we focus in, in detail as much as we can, on those individual events that occur week to week to keep you up to date. We divide the globe into four regions, the fourth of which will be Anglo-America this week with Andrew Miller bringing you an update on something that happened yesterday that he was roaming the editorial department halls and emailing some of us in editorial and broadcasting about. I heard him informing executive editor Stephen Fleury about it, and he was watching it live, so he's prepared a segment to report to you what it was that was happening yesterday. At the end of the program, we'll finish with a particularly interesting, I think, panel discussion on the life of Henry Kissinger, the late Secretary of State, of the United States who died this week and just what has changed from the beginning of Henry Kissinger and his career to the end. But first, we're going to start with conflict in Asia and watching the Asia region for us, for you each week is Jeremiah Jacques. Yes. Yeah. First of all, a few smaller stories here. Vladimir Putin addressed Russia's demographic collapse during a speech on Tuesday. He acknowledged that the country's population is shrinking. And that's bad news for Putin because he has you know big plans for more wars. So he gave a speech encouraging Russian women to start bearing more children. One part of the speech said, Many of our grandmothers and great-grandmothers had seven, eight, or even more children. Let us revive these excellent traditions. End quote. So right now, Russian women only have about 1.5 children each, which is far below the replacement rate. And the general mood there is pretty bleak as well. So I think it's unlikely that this call to multiply will uh, make much of a difference, but we'll see how it goes. And then another one here about Russian and Chinese business leaders holding some secret talks about building an undersea tunnel that runs from Russia to the Crimean Peninsula. So Crimea, of course, was annexed by Russia close to 10 years ago. And shortly after that, the Russians built a bridge to it. It's actually Europe's longest bridge, a massive point of pride and prestige for Vladimir Putin. And uh, it's also remarkably important for the war effort. You know, Russia relies on this to transfer weapons and ammunition and soldiers to the front. But the trouble is, Ukraine has hit this bridge a couple of times, which collapsed parts of it and forced very lengthy shutdowns. So now Russia is trying to find a new connection to Crimea that would be less vulnerable to those kinds of attacks. And intercepted communications show that one of China's largest state-owned construction firms is uh, apparently ready to step in and help Russia with this ambitious project. So it's still early days on this, but even just the fact that these talks have happened shows that Russia and China remain thick as thieves. One more quick one here about India. India is still buying great quantities of Russian energy, crude oil especially, despite the Western efforts to punish Russia for its war. And a new report shows that the Indians are processing this, turning it into diesel fuel, and then selling a great deal of it to Europe. So, you know, Europe has appeared to ban most energy imports from Russia, you know, to go along with those sanctions. But here we see that the Europeans are still relying on Russian energy to a great extent, but now they're simply buying it indirectly, 
using India as kind of a middleman. It shows that the sanctions that some in the West have promised would debilitate Russia are not nearly as effective as they were advertised. It shows that Europe's hands are not as clean as they pretend they are. And it shows that India, despite its attempts to kind of look neutral in the war, is really throwing Russia a huge lifeline that keeps the Russian war machine humming. You gave me a heads up as to the main story from Asia. It's the main story actually for both the Asia region and the second section that will do the Europe region. What is the main news this week out of Asia? Yes, the main story here is a sobering one. It is that almost for the first time since Putin invaded Ukraine back on February 24th of 2022, he looks as if he could win. Um, that is the assessment of an economist analysis published yesterday. This is a, a well-researched analysis, and it conforms with other analyses that have been emerging in recent days. And the main reasons for that assessment, according to The Economist, are that Putin has now put his country on a war footing, and he's really strengthened his own grip on power internally. He's also been quite successful at procuring military supplies from abroad, Nations like Iran, China, and North Korea especially are very helpful to him. Putin has also had a pretty significant diplomatic win turning the global south against America. And then probably most crucially, Putin has undermined the conviction in the West that Ukraine can and must emerge from the war as a thriving European democracy. That was a conviction that many had for the last you know, 18 months. But, but now that seems to be ending largely because of his efforts. So some of this shift, The Economist says, is, you know, as, as I mentioned there, the result of help from Russia's partners. Some of it is due to Russia's economic changes. There is actually a big budget that Putin passed this week, dramatically increasing military spending. So both of those are a big part of what's kind of tipping the scales into Russia's favor. But the bigger factor is Western fatalism, fatigue, lack of vision as The Economist says there. Western nations have been really slow-walking weapons to, to Ukraine for months, not giving enough attackums and other heavy weaponry to really allow for Ukraine to do much more than just hold its present ground. Um, that has been deeply demoralizing for the Ukrainians to see. And we'll hear from Mr. Palmer in just a moment that there have even been reports saying this is an intentional strategy by some Western powers just to kind of force Ukraine to negotiate with Putin's regime. So um, it means that Ukraine just doesn't have the weaponry at present that would allow it to recapture what Russia has taken. And this is despite almost endless statements that Western leaders have made about planning to provide that weaponry. It is a serious situation because unless Ukraine has the capabilities what we're to, 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 to defeat Russia, what we will see is a long-running war of attrition. Think Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s on Europe's eastern borders. Uh, Ukraine can't accept that, and Europe can't accept that. So what, is, what, what should they be doing? Number one, of course, is actually put their money where their mouth is. We've had a lot of rhetoric about we will do everything to support Ukraine to do what needs to be done. It's not being done. That was General Richard Sheriff, the former NATO Deputy Supreme Commander for Europe. And he makes a powerful point there about the failure of the West to follow through on commitments to Ukraine. And we've all seen clearly that Putin has just a stunning tolerance for losing men, a tolerance that some analysts say is even beyond that of Joseph Stalin. So all of this means that if current trends persist, we're looking most likely at a frozen conflict that would end up being very much in Russia's favor. It's interesting that The Economist covers the factors of armaments and the financial factors, et cetera, you know, the, the things that you would think it would. But if I understand you right, The Economist, uh, certainly your report, zeroes in on the factor of Vladimir Putin, the factor of the leadership there, especially as contrasted against the factor of the leadership of the Western nations. It's true, yes. This Economist piece does zero in on him and just really note the you know, the diplomatic wins that he's had around the world, we would have thought that nations in Africa and the, you know, South Asia would have said, wow, this is an alarming war that's happening. And, and we want to stand against this kind of imperialism. A lot of those nations have been subject to imperialism um, in previous decades. But instead, 
Putin's leadership, he has somehow won them over to seeing it his way. And it's baffling. It's uh, illogical, but it, it really is something that he, as a personality, is able to accomplish things that I think few world leaders would be able to along those lines. In your notes ahead of time, you pointed to the booklet by Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry that focuses on not just Russia, but on that personality of Vladimir Putin. Yes, that's right. And that booklet has really guided our forecast throughout this war. The trumpet has maintained that Putin will come out of all of this, you know, essentially undamaged, probably even stronger. We've really said that since the beginning of the conflict, mainly because of the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 38 discusses a figure called the Prince of Russia, if it's translated correctly. And trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has said that Putin is that prince. So, you know, because of this, we should expect Russia most likely to accomplish its wicked designs in Ukraine. But even if it doesn't go exactly according to Putin's plan there, we can still know that he will cling to power and go on to wage other wars. Ezekiel 38 really does say Prince of Russia. Obviously, it wasn't originally written in English, but when translated to English, it does equate to Prince of Russia. So have a look at the Prophesied Prince of Russia booklet. And also, as you mentioned, Jeremiah, why the trumpet watches a Russian strongman dominating Asia. This is one of our trends articles at thetrumpet.com. Go to thetrumpet.com slash trends. Why the trumpet watches a Russian strongman dominating Asia. So our next region is the Europe region. Richard Palmer, the assistant managing editor of thetrumpet.com and one of the editors for the Trumpet Print Magazine, watches Europe from week to week. He brings us this update, Mr. Palmer. Yes, I've got a quick update for you on the Dutch elections. We mentioned Het Wilders' stunning victory last week. This week, the difficulties of him forming a coalition are really asserting themselves just about everybody has has ruled out still working with him in government. Uh, that doesn't leave a, a good way forwards, but it's going to be. A, it looks like it's going to be a long, complicated process before the Dutch have some kind of a government sorted out. Also, Finland has closed its borders with Russia. It's accused Russia of being behind an influx of illegal immigrants coming into Finland. They're saying you know, Russia's deliberately flooding their borders. So we've got a new Iron Curtain starting to form. It's in Scandinavia. It's right at the top of Europe, but it's certainly a sign of the rising tensions over the Ukraine war between that. Ironically, though, our main story is about the potential, I guess, to diffuse some of those tensions. Build is Germany's mass circulation tabloid newspaper, and they had a surprising article over the weekend. They claimed that Germany had a secret plan to bring to end the Ukraine war and that the United States was on board with this. As we've talked about repeatedly on this show, the United States is being deliberately limited in what it is sending to Ukraine. It's refusing to sell Ukraine the type of long-range weapons that would really make a difference here. They're afraid of Russia. They're afraid that if a U.S.-made weapon that they've sold to Ukraine ends up being used to attack Russia within Russia, that there could be blowback on the United States on that. It leads to this kind of farcical situation where America will help Ukraine fight Russia in Ukraine, but they won't help Ukraine fight Russia in Russia. It's the same kind of thinking that really hampered the Korean War and their approach there. This has been going on for a long time. The German plan then would see both America and Germany go from here to gradually reduce weapon sales to Ukraine, to pressure Ukraine to sue for peace. That basically Ukraine would get enough weapons to hold the line, but no more. They said that with this, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky should realize that things cannot go on like this without any external request. And when you look at Germany and America and their relationship, Joe Biden and German Chancellor Olaf Schultz, they met privately in March. There were very few details released about that. There were very few advisors from both sides even in that meeting. It was, was really quite secretive what the two of them were talking about. So it definitely seems plausible that these two are working according to some kind of some kind of plan to force an end to the Ukraine war. And I think you look at the United States and 
yeah, I think Joe Biden probably does want to wind this war up before he runs into an election year. That that kind of takes it off the table as a political issue. Germany's economy has taken a major hit because so much of its economy has been built around trade with Russia. They would really and dearly love to get access to Russian cheap gas once again to be able to go back to business as usual. And a lot of the business has gone on more as usual than than people realize. Germany just sells their weapons or sells things to Kazakhstan instead of to to Russia and Kazakhstan and some of these other stars act as the middleman. But still, it's certain this lack of access to Russian cheap energy has certainly really hurt Germany's businesses. So both of these countries would would really love to go back to business as usual. So it is very plausible that the two of them are working behind the scenes on a German plan to do just that. So speaking for the Trumpet.com and the Philadelphia Trumpet magazine, where do you see this going? Well, I think speaking as the Trumpet.com, we have talked about a potential for there being a German-Russian secret deal for years and years and years. We had an article in the July 2022 Trumpet print edition, Germany's secret deal with Russia exposed, really showing the way that that Germany did as much as they could to side with Russia during this war. So when there's talk of Germany and Russia and secret deals, as you can imagine, our ears immediately prick up. So I think that's a core reason why we're we're paying attention here. And so if Germany is all along really been on Russia's side and you look at the way that they've behaved throughout this war, you look at the way that even before the war, when countries like Britain were selling reinforcements or sending weapons to Ukraine, they had to fly around German airspace because they weren't confident that Germany would give them permission to go through. The way that Germany would make these big announcements, we're sending all these weapons to Ukraine, and then quietly you'd find out that they'll get there in two years. And even the way that the German chancellor got caught lying repeatedly, you're know, saying, oh, we gave Russia a list of everything that we had available, or sorry, Ukraine, a list of everything we had available to send them. They didn't want anything. Then you find out that they, he doctored the list, that he's lying about that whole situation, that they did have weapons, that they could have sent Ukraine immediately, but he just didn't want to do it. You know, those kind of shenanigans have gone on repeatedly. You do have to ask, whose side is Germany on here? And there are good reasons to speculate then. Then you look at the longstanding economic relationship between Germany and Russia that really... Germany is kind of on Russia's side here, and they can't say that publicly at the moment for fear of lo- breaking apart the European Union, losing the control that they've built up already over a lot of other European countries. And so they're quietly sound- siding with Russia, though, behind the scenes. And then you see them working on this deal that really would kind of throw Ukraine under the bus, say no, very few new weapons, enough to hold the line. And if they're siding with Russia, what else would they poison a potential peace deal with? It's really something something to be to be aware of. Is this Russia? Is this Germany's way of delivering Ukraine to Russia diplomatically behind the scenes? And you certainly look at back in two thousand and seven when NATO was looking at expanding into Ukraine and looking at putting Ukraine on the path to NATO membership. It was Germany that vetoed that, uh, and it's Germany that has consistently vetoed that. Some people say that. Putin invaded Ukraine because it was about to join NATO. It's not true because joining NATO requires unanimous consent and Germany and and France as well had consistently vetoed it. So you put all of that together and I think there's certainly a dangerous possibility there. You put that all together with Bible prophecy and that dangerous possibility becomes much starker. Uh, The Bible talks about Germany and Europe. It uses the term lovers, this kind of Poetic term, you could say, for for allies, where the United States believes that Germany is an ally and more than an ally, someone who really loves and has America's best interest at heart. And the Bible says they're going to betray you. They're going to conspire. They're going to work behind the scenes. You do deals with your enemies, work to bring you down. You may think you trust them, but that's not true. A lot of that, you can you look at the reality of the world, you take off the rose-colored glasses, you can see a lot of the reality of the lover's prophecy coming true right now. And that article that I mentioned, Germany's secret deal with Russia exposed, it goes through and gives a lot of concrete evidence of ways that Germany has already turned against the United States 
and is working with Russia. Germany's secret deal with Russia exposed. That's at the trumpet.com. Germany's secret deal with Russia exposed. We have uh, quite a bit of detail in terms of Germany's relationship with America, Germany's relationship with Russia in the shorter term, and then quite a bit of detail about Germany's clash with Russia later on. So all of that's available to you at thetrumpet.com, but start with Germany's secret deal with Russia exposed. You are listening to Trumpet Hour Week in Review. We'll be right back. Listening to Trumpet Hour, the Week in Review. You are listening to Trumpet Hour, Week in Review, and we have covered two of the four regions of the globe, Asia and Europe, and now we move to the Middle East. Mihailo Zekic, please give us your update on the Middle East. Yes, so yesterday Hamas launched a terror attack. Uh, on the outskirts of Jerusalem at a bus stop, actually, three people died, plus someone who unfortunately was killed by friendly fire. The authorities thought he was one of the attackers. Uh, As of today, the ceasefire, or what the Israeli government calls a truce, has expired. They claim that Hamas violated the terms by not providing a list of hostages it was going to release, but considering that uh, it sponsored the terror attack in Jerusalem, that's probably a more likely cause. Uh, As of this morning, Israel has resumed airstrikes on uh, Gaza. We'll see what updates happen with the ground invasion. And the New York Times had a couple of interesting pieces as well. On the 29th, they reported, according to certain officials, that the United States, among others, was pushing for the ceasefire that just now ended to be a long-term solution that would have put an end to the war or stayed in other ways, would have given the war a conclusion where Hamas remains in Gaza, which is considering all the rhetoric they've been giving about how they support Israel 100 percent, I think that's pretty revealing. And then also yesterday, the New York Times released their analysis of a 40-page document called uh, by Israeli authorities Jericho Wall, which shows that Israel has been aware that Hamas was planning something remarkably similar to the October 7th attack since last year. The report details how Hamas was going to get into Israel, what they were going to do, et cetera, et cetera. And they basically followed through with what happened uh, on October 7th almost exactly. We'll see what the fallout of this is in the days and weeks to come. Uh, but for now, at least it adds a little wrinkle to what's happening in Israel. For sure. And the terror reaching right into Jerusalem, certainly very notable. I mean, obviously, intelligence agencies monitor quite a few threats, many of which never come to fruition. But whatever facts that really are facts that come out about what at least some Israeli agents knew ahead of time certainly are of great interest, especially as Hamas promises more October 7th or October 7th is just a warm up, that type of language coming from them, even as they want ceasefires and so forth. But your main story, you give me a heads up on that, is over the head of Hamas, over the head of Hezbollah is Iran. And this story comes from Iran. Yes. So on November 28th, Rahim Tabakol, who sits on Iran's Assembly of Experts, that's sort of like a body in Iran that's supposed to monitor the behavior of the supreme leader, but in reality, they're one way or another appointed by him indirectly, so they're not going to do anything they don't like. But anyway, this guy talked to uh, Iranian media saying that the Assembly of Experts has created a new committee of three people, him included, that will appoint a new deputy supreme leader. This is a position that for over 30 years has not existed in Iranian politics. The original supreme leader, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, he had one for a few months and then he got into a big spat with him and dissolved the position and threw the guy in house arrest until his death. Since then, 1989, that that was the year that happened, Khomeini dies. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei takes over. He's been the Ayatollah since. He's been the supreme leader of Iran since. He's one of the longest currently serving heads of state in the world. And he, for that whole time, he hasn't had a designated successor. He's 84 years old now. He's been around, obviously seen a lot. 
Uh, he's not getting any younger. His health's not getting any uh, more rejuvenated. And looks like Hamini is deciding now's the time to get somebody ready in case if he dies or through different reasons has to retire. Now, there's a lot we don't know about this. What we do know is aside from Tabakol, there are two other men on the committee are Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi and the imam that leads the Friday prayers in Tehran. And also, according to Tavakol, only those three men and Hemeni himself know who are being selected. The rest of the assembly of experts that has 88 people, they're not even aware what their own committee is doing. So that goes to show you the secrecy behind this. But also, they apparently already have some sort of shortlist of candidates. That's, again, something uh, Tavakol told media. It looks like he wasn't supposed to squeal as much, but some journalists there pressed him a little bit. So what exactly this means, whether we're going to have a name announced to us next week or whether they're going to decide on a name, but we won't hear about it for a while, we don't know. But considering how long Ayatollah Khomeini has been around, I mean, 1989, East Germany was still a country back then. The world was a very different place. And in those decades since, a lot of what we see in the world today, whether it's in Israel or terror attacks in Europe, terror attacks in South America, the squabble with the United States, uh, control of oil routes, that was all under Khomeini. So once he's gone, having a new leader in that position as supreme leader of Iran would be a complete game changer in say, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and whatever's happening with all these other terror groups like Hezbollah and the Houthis and their leadership on Iranian relations with the moderate Arabs, with Europe, with America, this could all potentially change in a huge way once we have somebody new calling the shots. And again, Hamani isn't getting any younger. Perhaps he knows something we don't about his health, or uh, maybe he sees that he'll have to exit the picture soon faster than we on the outside realize, but the idea of a brand new leader running Iran would certainly be something to keep watch of. And going back quite a ways, not quite to 1989, but to the uh, mid-early 1990s, Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has identified Iran and its radical Islamist leadership as the king of the South in Bible prophecy. So he has kept an eye on Iran, again, at, at a time when the world was very different and Iran was not nearly the factor that it is today. Yes. So Mr. Fleury gets that term, the king of the South, from a prophecy in Daniel 11, verse 40. It's an end time prophecy. As the verse brings out, it talks about a king of the South and a king of the North clashing together. The king of the South, as you mentioned, Mr. Fleury, for decades has identified as Iran leading radical Islam. The rest of the verses speak of some of the countries that will be allied with Iran, some of them that haven't fallen to Iran yet, per se, like Egypt, uh, Libya, Ethiopia, uh, this huge swath of a, of a proxy empire in the Middle East. But who's the king of the north? Well, the editor-in-chief of our predecessor magazine, The Plain Truth, Mr. Sherbert W. Armstrong, pointed to, well before Mr. Fleury made these predictions, that the king of the north in our time is to be a united Europe. And we have different resources on our website showing through biblical and secular history why that is the case. Now, Bible prophecy does not say who's going to be in charge of Iran when this clash happens. We don't know if there's going to be a, a new Ayatollah in town or if Khomeini is going to live another 15 years and somehow still pull the reins. But we do expect Iran to change course in a number of ways. Like I mentioned, there's some countries that Iran doesn't have in its empire that we expect it to add. At this point, Europe is not Iran's biggest target. At this point, Europe is not the big challenger Iran sees as having this clash of civilizations with, who knows? Maybe the reason Iran makes some of these shifts is because there's a new ultimate authority calling the shots, seeing things, seeing the world a little bit differently than how Khomeini sees it today. We'll have to wait and see. But again, Khomeini is pretty old and it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to imagine that his position could get a replacement pretty soon. And if you, our listeners would like to learn more, we have a trends article on our website called Why the Trumpet Watches Iran and Europe Heading for a Clash of Civilizations. 
why the trumpet watches Iran and Europe heading for a clash of civilizations. That goes into a bit more of the detail on who the king of the south is, why we're watching him, what we expect in the future. It's at thetrumpet.com slash trends. Iran and Europe heading for a clash of civilizations. The king of the south, the king of the north, they are identities in the Bible. Are they also in the news here in 2023, the verge of 2024? You'll have to look at thetrumpet.com slash trends, Iran and Europe heading for a clash of civilizations. Now we go to region four of four, which is Anglo-America, and to that news development I promised you earlier, and Andrew Miller. Yeah, well, as promised, here's that news development, and it is a big one. Uh, Yesterday, Michael Schellenberg and Matt Taibbe testified before Congress on the weaponization of the federal government. Those hearings, they're available on C-SPAN or YouTube or whatever if you actually want to get listen to the whole thing because this is really just some bombshell revelations for those who've been following the Twitter file story. Both Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbe are prominent journalists who are working with Elon Musk revealing that Twitter was basically working as an arm of the federal government before Musk bought it. But what they're coming out and talking about on this last Thursday was probably even bigger than the Twitter files, just as big, if not bigger. Because one point that we've made numerous times in our coverage of the Twitter files is that the Twitter files were covering just how much collusion there was between the federal government and Silicon Valley and how much information was being censored and how biased the media was against conservatives. But one criticism we've continually made of them is they never really get back to when did it start. Everything they're revealing is what was Twitter doing during the Trump administration or how did the government use Twitter to censor COVID during the Trump administration. But this relationship between Twitter and the federal government was already fully formed during the Trump administration. So it must have formed, just by logical deduction, under whoever was president before Donald Trump was. These latest hearings start getting back into that information, that basically they've got an anonymous whistleblower, a former British intelligence agent, a woman who worked with the Cyber Threat Intelligence League to make algorithms to do the type of censorship that the Twitter files have been exposing. But she said that that woman was actually in the room in the Obama White House when she was specifically instructed to make sure 2016 never happens again. Some other testimony they gave says that when they say 2016, they're referring to primarily two things that happened in 2016, Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. They're like, Britain left the European Union, and America elected a president who's against the deep state. Same year. And they're like, they said, we need to make sure neither of these two things ever happen again. Therefore, we need the government then to work with groups like this Cyber Threat Intelligence League to use artificial intelligence to identify opinions we don't like and our influence with the big Silicon Valley companies, Twitter, Google, Apple, Facebook, YouTube, some of those are owned by the same company, I know, to make sure that you don't hear those opinions. Which huge is for two reasons. Is for one, many people who were defending what the government was doing under Twitter say that like, oh, well, Twitter and Google, they're private companies. They have a right to censor what they want. It's like this proof is like, no, this isn't just a private company censoring. It's like this is a company working under directions from the federal government. Uh, so it's a First Amendment violation. And it's a First Amendment violation deliberately orchestrated by the Obama White House for the purpose of making sure that Donald Trump or anyone like him is never elected again and something like Brexit never happens again. This testimony that you brought our attention to has been a bit of a sensation. It really should be much more so. But here in the department, we've been emailing back and forth about it with different quotes from different parts of the article and the testimony and so forth. Uh, the one that I sent was that that older Lee Smith quote, the journalist Lee Smith, where he said, I'm paraphrasing, but Twitter was built not only to take down Donald Trump and anyone like him, but to replace the republic, <laughs> to influence people so heavily that you 
can govern them in a fundamentally different way than having to govern them according to their will as expressed through their representatives. But you think about now, now I know there are conspiracy theories that are not true. <laughs> this is not one of those because 2006, it's created 2007. It becomes popular 2008. Barack Obama is elected president by tw- by the end of his presidency, 2012. This thing is heavily influenced by the government. And by 2016 and thereafter, we have evidence, we have emails, we have communications between federal agencies and Twitter officials showing how this is, as you've said, or as Matt Taibbi or Schellenberg said, a master canine relationship where the federal government was wielding what everyone thought was an independent social media platform. What do you see as like the overall larger significance of this revelation? I think you really hit it with the larger significance of the fact that this is like the end of the republic and it's a workaround to where it's not like a traditional dictatorship where people don't get to vote and like they live under a king who inherited the position because his dad got the position and it's an absolute monarchy. It's a position where people still have the illusion of that they're voting and they're participating in a constitutional republic, but they vote the way the people in power want them to vote because the people in power have such control over the media that they can control the information going into your mind. Now, it's true. I mean, they've done studies on it that they said if you can get if you can get a news article off the front page of Google, <laughs> you can make sure that like 90% of the nation never sees it. Hmm. And so it's like just the government relationship with Google alone. If you can say like take the positive articles about Donald Trump off the front page of Google, put the, take the negative information about Joe Biden off the front page of Google – We don't even have to like rig elections in like stuffing ballot boxes because you can actually get a a society where the candidate supported by the party in power actually gets the most votes because the people have been under the illusion that like, oh, I'm I'm an independent. I'm a free thinker. I'm I'm doing my own research on my MacBook, on my couch, trying to figure out the, the issues. But the the government who controls the internet browser that's right. telling you what your issue is is like your independent research is being fed to you in right. such a way as to make you behave in certain ways. Yeah. It's really some scary next generation stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll put our editor-in-chief books, America Under Attack, in there. We'll also put an article that I don't think is in America Under Attack called Barack Obama and the Twitter Files that really exposed from the biblical perspective that the devil's using a political figure, Barack Obama, like an end-time Antiochus, to cast truth to the ground and destroy America's constitutional republic. So that's the big picture. But in far of the tools that he has at his disposal to replace the republic and cast the truth to the ground, his power over Silicon Valley is maybe the most powerful tool in his toolbox. Barack Obama and the Twitter files, as well as America Under Attack. I'm also going to throw in there this one that I just came across this week as we were talking about this, but it's treason in America and Britain. There's a connection to Britain even in some of this technological intervention and manipulation. So, But that's Barack Obama and the Twitter files, as well as America Under Attack. listening to Trumpet Hour, the Week in Review. Welcome to our final segment of Trumpet Hour Week in Review. I'm Philip Nice with Andrew Miller, Jeremiah Jacques, Richard Palmer, and Mihailo Zekic. This is the roundtable segment, and our topic is Henry Kissinger and what he represents. But that you cannot get from where you are to your ideals in one step. And therefore, I believe today, if one wants to solve the problems of this world, then one has to be inspired by visions. 
Henry Kissinger, born 100 years ago, the interview you heard there was his last major interview with uh, Axel Springer in Germany. And the world has changed in the 100 years since Henry Kissinger was born, in the uh, half century or so since he was active and became famous as the Secretary of State of the United States. Richard Palmer, you've been writing about this a little bit this week. Tell us a little bit more about why this topic, this death and life of Henry Kissinger is important. It's hard to think of any other figure in international relations whose death would make front page newspapers all around the world. I think that shows there is something unique and remarkable about Henry Kissinger, like most other people who were Secretary of State at some point in the 1970s, your average person just has not heard of. So he had an enduring power, an enduring reach, certainly an enduring controversy that has captured a lot of people's attention. I think he became the figurehead for, rightly or wrongly, the figurehead for realism as a foreign policy. And this is a, a school of thought, a foreign policy that is built on the foundational belief that human nature is fundamentally selfish and that we shouldn't hope that other nations are going to be nice to us. We should know that they're going to be selfish. They're going to act in their own self-interest. They're going to do evil things. And we have to live within that. It's, it's almost the foreign policy equivalent of the U.S. Constitution in that we're not going to build a foreign policy that or a government that assumes humans are good. That's not going to work. We have to try and work with what we've got. And we have to build something that's going to work with human beings being evil. And I think that is a the liberal liberalism is an alternative foreign policy. It's something that the left finds deeply repellent. And so I think he became a figure for hate on the left because the utopianist view views human nature as basically good. We've got basically good ingredients. We can build a better world because there's you know, the patriarchy or these systems that are around us that cause evil. If we can get rid of obsolete social institutions, we can make the world a better place. Kissinger, very much the most prominent public figure for the opposite. And so I think a core influence that he's had on the United States, and I don't agree with or defend everything that Kissinger has done. I think he there are, there's things that I disagree with. But I think the loss of a powerful, realist voice in the world is something that perhaps over time will do some hurt to the United States and that you can see there being a much more liberal bent, potentially in American foreign policy, I mean, really as his influence has declined and even just as the overall influence of this school of thought has declined. It just made me think about how much the world has changed. I mean, he had his way of thinking, his approach and so forth, but he implemented it, you know, like he, as you're alluding to there, changed the world in real ways. One of the most well-known is how he changed America's relationship with China. Yeah, that was really considered to be one of Kissinger's kind of signature foreign policy moves. He built this partnership between the U.S. and China. This happened back in 1971. At this time, the United States was deep into the extremely fraught and dangerous Cold War against the Soviet Union. And for a couple of decades, America had basically ignored communist China, but that hadn't accomplished anything. So Kissinger and Richard Nixon said, hey, why don't we open up to China, build a bond with them, and this will help us to isolate the Soviet Union and maybe defeat it. And in the short term, this did prove to be a sound strategy. America's rapprochement with China was a huge factor in winning the Cold War for the U.S., right around the start of the 1990s. But of course, time kept on marching on from there. And America's relationship with China ended up empowering the Chinese Communist Party. We transferred all kinds of technology and weaponry to the CCP. As part of this partnership, Kissinger personally spearheaded a lot of that transfer. He traveled to China more than 100 times, often uh, making deals that helped the CCP grow more technologically advanced and just better armed. And this did transform China from a backward, impoverished country, basically of a bunch of rice farmers, into the economic and military juggernaut that it is today. And of course, China today is not just mighty, 
It's also mighty angry at how it's been treated in, in previous decades and dead set on undermining America's power so that China can be the head honcho, the, the dominant global power. And this Chinese goal presents some serious threats to the United States. So basically, we have a situation now where because of Kissinger's strategy to end the Cold War by reaching out to China, we are now in Cold War 2.0, a whole new conflict that's even more perilous, I think, than the original Cold War. So it shows just how complex geopolitics is. It's often a choice between bad and worse. But I think that in the balance, you have to say that history looks back on Kissinger's China policy with John Destai. They called him a shuttle diplomat, shuttle diplomacy. You mentioned 100 trips to China. When you said that, I reminded of how did the Soviet Union get all of its tractors and technology and a lot of its power that built up to result in Cold War 1.0? Mihailo Zekic, you've you watched the Middle East and you've had some thoughts on Kissinger. Yeah, so what you just said, shell diplomacy. He, his journeys basically became the definition for that. So, I don't. Know, I just think it's interesting when he has somebody that even just changes the English language and introduces words based off of his actions. I think it goes to show you how influential he was. As far as the Middle East, he's probably most famous for is his role mediating between Israel and Egypt during the Yom Kippur War, which we just had the 50th anniversary of earlier this year. A little bit of a mixed legacy there. On the one hand, he and the Nixon administration didn't stop the war, and he was going back and forth trying to get Anwar Sadat or Golda Meir to back down. And in some cases, he was asking a few too many con- concessions from the Israelis, like keeping Egyptian armies alive. But on the other hand, Anwar Sadat writes this in his autobiography, Kissinger threatened him personally, saying the Pentagon will go after you you. And that was one of the things that contributed to him going for eventually a ceasefire. What I think is interesting in this perspective is that you jump ahead a couple of presidential administrations to the Carter administration and the Camp David Accords when Israel and Egypt finally made a peace treaty and recognized each other. Henry Kissinger is seen by some as being the start of that between his 33 days of going back and forth between Israel and Egypt during the war, which, I mean, again, the fact that he could fly from one country to another during wartime, I think, goes to show how much both sides respected him. But his pressuring to get a solution, that that laid the groundwork for that. Mr. Armstrong, who I mentioned earlier, he actually wrote a couple of coworker articles about his trips in the Middle East, whatnot. And oftentimes, though we wouldn't meet personally with him, he'd be in Egypt or in Israel at the same time Henry Kissinger would be in there. And they'd be flying back and forth between Tel Aviv and Cairo the same time. Somebody in Israel once told him that when they heard he flew in directly from Egypt, like, only you and Dr. Kissinger can do that. So I think it goes to show what the power of one man is, not just necessarily on like these grand chess strategies or whatnot is, but even just laying the foundations for peace itself. We talk a lot about the influence Mr. Armstrong had on the Israel-Egypt peace deal. Henry Kissinger, though maybe not as big of an impact, he certainly had an impact in that as well. So it goes to show people sometimes talk about realism as I want to get what's mine, like I'm going to be a total sociopath, etc. Realism can be a force for peace as well. And, And at least in the Yom Kippur Wars case, Henry Kissinger's actions can demonstrate that. I thought that was an interesting way of putting it. Shows what a man can do. Because I agree, but I also think one of the points I wanted to bring out is I think it shows the limitations of, of man and what man can't do. Because I think Henry Kissinger, gen- from everything I've read about him, I think he was genuinely ferociously clever. Uh, I don't think he was particularly naive. I think he had a very good understanding of how a lot of the world worked. Uh, and I think he had a, quite a lot of basic assumptions right. And yet, at the same time, I completely agree with Jeremiah that I think there are some things that in the long run have been tremendously destructive that he has put in place, especially you're going to China. But really, he's been the architect of America helping to build up a lot of countries that we know from Bible prophecy are going to harm the United States. We've got an article coming on Monday from Joshua Michels that goes through some of this. But you, you see someone that has a lot right himself, but it still goes wrong. And the best that his foreign policy really can, can come up with is this balance of power policy that is about, okay, we've got an enemy in the Soviet Union, well, let's build up China. And I think also, as you said, yeah, there was a genuine desire for peace for Henry Kissinger in that he, he grew up in the shadow of the nuclear bomb. 
And he absolutely did not. You know, he, the biggest thing he was trying to do was stop nuclear World War Three. But that led to things like a policy of dente with Russia that led to, you know, maybe not, it's not naive appeasement, but it's still, I think, not recognizing the evil that's inherent within the Soviet Union and in communism for what it is. And so the result of Henry Kissinger, an incredibly clever person doing what he thought best and getting some things right, has still made the world more dangerous for the United States, has still built up enemies for the United States. And so it really does underscore this point that's repeated in both testaments of the Bible, that the way of peace man has not known and doesn't know. And that fundamentally, the way to bring about peace between countries is a spiritual problem. It's a problem that relates that we can only solve with divine revelation from the Bible. It's not something that can be solved with somebody that knows a huge amount about the way company, the countries work. I think one of his failings was that he believed too much in the power of personal relationships and that he could bring peace by having good personal relationships with lots of people or building up good personal relationships between different people. And he was very much a people person, but there's almost a, a kind of a lack of realism there in this belief that personal personal relationships can lead to peace. So I think there's a warning there that just even somebody that is tremendously talented and knowledgeable and gifted, if the way of peace only comes from Bible knowledge, from revealed knowledge from God, and that person cannot in the long run bring bring peace. And that's the contrast Mr. Armstrong made between himself and Henry Kissinger, that they were both traveling around. Henry Kissinger was at best, though, bringing temporary peace to situations. And I think, yeah, he was pretty good at that. But it takes revealed knowledge to bring permanent peace. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about uh, the Mr. Armstrong side of this shuttle diplomacy, he was called an, um, an unofficial ambassador for world peace without portfolio. He actually met world leaders. We're talking like legislators, prime ministers, presidents, kings, emperors, judges, all kinds of high-level people uh, for high-level conversations on what you might think is the other end of the spectrum, a very idealistic message from him about world peace without the threats or the promises or the making deals with dictators, just the message itself. There's two booklets at thetrumpet.com slash library, Ambassador for World Peace, and a warm friend of Israel. Very interesting, very unique individual in a very unique position that he actually did not seek out. And yet he found himself jetting all over the world, crisscrossing paths with Henry Kissinger uh, with his message. So that's Ambassador for World Peace and a warm friend of Israel. That is the Week in Review, Trumpet Hour, December 1st, 2023. We thank you for listening. Email us your thoughts, letters at thetrumpet.com. We thank Parker Campbell here and Isaac Lorenz for engineering and production. And we thank you for listening to Weekend Review. Make sure to listen to Jeremiah Jacques on Wednesday for the next edition of Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.